Hi, I'm Tara Lee and welcome to Star Being, your cosmic journey to self-discovery, higher consciousness and spiritual exploration. This podcast serves as a guiding light, illuminating the path to wisdom, healing and conscious living. Let's start being ignite your inner light as we transcend limitations and tap into the universal consciousness that unites and empowers all of us. Welcome to episode five, the Yugias cyclical nature of existence with Joseph Selby. This is a very special interview for me. I over the last couple of months have been reading one of Joseph's book, who he did a co-authorship with this one called The Yugias. And this book has really woven together uh, every question and curiosity that I've had in my mind and my soul from my religious upbringing to biblical stories, from studies of other religions to my background in astronomy as well as my exploration of Ayurveda and astrology. This book really has filled in these last remaining pieces or gaps in my soul. And I feel like I've been on this lifelong quest for knowledge. And those that know me know that I have this insatiable um, quest for knowledge and, and learning and expanding. And so it's been quite the journey and uh, coming across this book has been incredibly profound. There has been two books that have really expanded my journey um, and this is definitely adding to that list. I cannot recommend this book highly enough, especially in a time where we are really wanting a different narrative of the future. And this really does that. So yeah, I want to encourage you to explore this book. It's given me after this conversation with Joseph and reflecting on it, I feel this really this deep peace. And yeah, so I'm excited for you to listen to this episode. Joseph is a active speaker, teacher, author, and conference presenter. He enjoys making the complex and the obscure simple and clear. He is the author of Break Through the Limits of the Brain, How Neuroscience Supports Spiritual Experience, The Physics of God, A Unification of Science and Religion, and the book that I was mentioning, The Yugias, A Factual Look at India's Traditional uh, tradition of cyclical history. He is known for creating bridges of understanding between the modern evidence-based discoveries of science and the timeless experience-based discoveries of the mystics. I want to give this episode a little bit of context because Joseph and I go very deep and if you haven't come across the theory of the Yugias, I really want to just lay that context here. So first of all, a Yugia in Sanskrit translates to age or era. And so it refers to a specific period of time in 
uh, Hindu cosmology and philosophy and it really represents the cycles of spiritual evolution and cosmic change. So each yugia changes the consciousness of mankind. And so I just want you to picture a circle in your mind's eye and imagine that circle and that this circle is then split into two equal parts. And now imagine going clockwise and this is the circle that is descending to the bottom of that circle in half. And then if you still go continue going around the circle, now we're ascending and going up to the starting point. And this is what I want you to picture in your mind as Joseph and I are having this conversation. So on those two halves of the circle, there is the descending and the ascending. And these are broken up into four distinct ages or yugias. And so at the very top is the Satya Yagya. And this is also referred to as the golden age. And this is an age of truth and righteousness and pure consciousness where there is virtue and um, spirituality is really prevalent and Joseph and I go more into these concepts in this conversation. The second um, age is um, Trecha Yugya and this is also known as the Silver Age and this is the age of mind and thought and this is really where consciousness has the power to destroy and, and create with their minds. And then we come to Dwapa Yugya, and this is all known as the Bronze Age. It's also known as the Age of Magic or the Energy Age. And this is the time period that we are currently in. We are in the Ascending Dwapa. And we go into this in the conversation as well. Lastly is Kala Yuga. And this is also known as the Iron Age. And this is the lowest cycle characterized by darkness and ignorance and an age where moral and ethical decline and um, spiritual degradation uh, exists. So these are the four ages and so on, you have the, these on the ascending and then the um, descending. And so I hope that was a little, <laughs> little um, yeah, foundation for this conversation. I am really, really excited to introduce you to this concept. If you have not heard of it before, just come into this conversation with an open mind and I, yeah, I would love to hear your feedback on this one and yeah, enjoy. Welcome, Joseph. I am so excited to have you on this podcast. I was just mentioning to you how much your book, um, books, I've read um, both of them now that you have written, have expanded my consciousness and so it's such a, such an honour and I was actually sitting in this last night and I was just thinking how grateful I am to be able to 
yeah, speak to you. So thank you so much for, for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk about things I love and uh, hopefully people listening will uh, gain something from it. Yes, and so I first discovered your uh, Yuga's book and so I was wondering if we could start off there. How did this come into your life? Because this is something that I've only really discovered over the past year that has been coming up everywhere for me and then I came across your book and I, yeah, couldn't put it down. So I would love to know how you've discovered uh, this knowledge and how much it's impacted you, Joseph? Well, I discovered the book that is the sort of essence of the book I wrote eventually called The Yugas. Uh, and that book is The Holy Science by uh, Swami Sri Yukteswar. And few people have heard of Sri Yukteswar, but most people would have heard of him from reading autobiography of a yogi, which is by Paramahansa Yogananda. And Yogananda is my source of spiritual teachings. Uh, and I discovered him 50 years ago. But almost at the same time, I discovered Teshwar's book, The Holy Science. And as it turned out, I was in the midst of uh, several years of college where I had been studying ancient Greek history and then ancient uh, history of South India, South uh, sort of um, all of India, but uh, Southeastern Asian studies, as it was called when I went to Berkeley. And when I found the holy science, so many things came together from what I had been studying that I just went forever as deep as I could into studying it more and have kept up with studies, discoveries, other books, other speakers that have to do with the ancient past and really ancient past, you know, going back not just two, three, four thousand years, but eight, ten, 12,000 years, which is what the yuga, the span of the yugas addresses. And I have just found it to be, the yugas to be such a good fit for what is has actually been discovered about the ancient past. Mm, yes, and this is what expanded everything for me, Joseph, because it put, I had all these um, concepts up in the air and this, um, your, your writings actually anchored everything down and so started answering all these questions and this is why it has been so illuminating for me and, yeah, so that is fascinating that you discovered this. So this has really been a life's work for you, Joseph, because you have been on this path and your your writing is so referenced and it's deeply steeped in science as well and you have your book um the physics of god um and so yeah i would love to know your relationship with science and spirituality well i grew up in a family 
uh, that was very strongly science-oriented, especially my father. My brother went on to be an engineer. I have uncles and grandparents who were doctors. And so it was a very strong way of viewing the world when I was growing up was through the lens of science. I like to joke that dinner table conversation required references. So you you couldn't just, you know, set forth some thought without having backup facts because that's just the way my my family was. So I went off to college thoroughly expecting to end up with a degree in science. And uh, for the first couple of years of college, I was taking the kind of standard foundational courses for a science degree, calculus and biology and chemistry and physics. And I enjoyed them all, but somewhere around about the middle of those years, I had a profound uh, hallucinogenic experience. Now, it wasn't my first or only experience, but it was a standout experience for me because it was moving and transforming. It connected me to spirit in a way that I believed was possible. I had been reading about and open to, but this was the first time I had the depth of experience that really set my whole life direction in the, the spiritual orientation. And that's what connected me to Yogananda and Sri Teshwar, as I mentioned. But I never lost my interest in science. So for the next many decades, it's been 50 years since I first really had that experience, I have had this love affair of both, spiritual teachings and science. I like science's uh, disciplined approach to making discoveries. I like its um, way of methodically getting to facts rather than um, kind of just people having opinions. But I also love the experiential basis of spirituality. What really drew me to Yogananda's teachings was in particular reading his book, The Autobiography of a Yogi, in which he shares profound spiritual experiences. They're not scientific in the sense that you have 100 people and you test them all and you see what kind of spiritual experience each one can have. They are coming from his personal direct experience of the divine. But he shares them in such a way that is very convincing. And he also, through the course of Autobiography of a Yogi, wove in a lot of science, which was pleasing and surprising to me. He devotes an entire chapter to what the, the, the chapter is called the science of religion, but it's uh, and the law of miracles. And in it, he talks about Einstein's law of relativity, 
and the whole uh, subatomic world that comes out in physics in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And, and he shows that there's no conflict between spiritual experience and these deeper physical laws. And I just, I loved that. And of course, as I already mentioned, he talks about, as well as Sri Yukteswar, the yugas, this cycle of time, but he grounds it in actual um, archaeological, paleontological, and scientific information that makes it believable. So for me, it's been a wonderful mix of mm. science and spirituality for, you know, the bulk of my life. Mm, yeah, this, this is why I find it so um, grounding and anchoring because of the work is so referenced, but then that spirituality element that you overlay in it as well is, yeah, it's just an absolute art um, what you've been able to achieve in your work, um, Joseph. And so thank you for getting us to understand exactly the, the flavor of that and that journey for you. I would love for you to speak about the yugas because this is something that I I would love to know your definition, how you explain it. And um, if you could go into some of the qualities of each of the yugas as well um, to get that understanding. Sure. So majority of people that I've run into have never heard of the yugas before. It's not a really well-known concept. Uh, if you were born and live in India, you would be more likely to be aware of the yugas. The basic concept of the yugas is that the development of consciousness, the development of civilization, the development of mankind is not a linear uh, effect, but rather is a cyclical effect. And that what is commonly believed about human development is typically Darwinian. Um, it's evolutionary. And that if you go back further and further in the past, that mankind as a whole will be less and less sophisticated. Whereas the yugas, because it's cyclical as a concept, suggests that the further you go back into the past, the higher the level of consciousness you will discover. Not necessarily technology, which is a way in which we tend to equate development with uh, this, this unfolding ability of mankind to, you know, make things and do things and exploit energy, but instead, not a technical thing, but a degree of awareness of subtler and subtler aspects of reality. So let me ground that a bit. The yugas, as they're understood uh, in India, and particularly as they are put forward by Sri Yukteswar, who was an Indian teacher, spiritual teacher, is a 24,000 year cycle. 
And half of the cycle is a descending arc from a peak of high awareness for 12,000 years to a low point of material awareness. And then a ascending arc that is just the opposite that goes from this low point of material consciousness and eventually will once again reach this point of high spiritual awareness. And that arc is broken into four ages or yugas. Yugas just literally means ages. Mm. And those four ages are a spiritual age, which is known as Satya Yuga, which is the highest age. And then a mental age, which um, in which mankind as a whole can really manipulate thought and use thought in ways to affect the physical world. And this age is known as Treta Yuga. And then there is an age of energy where mankind as a whole uh, can exploit outward energy, but also inner subtle energy, what we might think of as spiritual energy. And that is the Dwapara Yuga. And then finally, the lowest age is an age in which mankind as a whole is only aware of what can be revealed by the senses. And it's known as Kali Yuga. Now, this cycle hits its lowest point in Kali Yuga, and then it begins with a ascending Kali Yuga that is of equal length to the descending. And then Dwapara Yuga begins again, and that's where we are in the cycle that mankind as a whole entered Dwapara Yuga, the age of energy in 1700 AD. Yes, and uh, there was a Go ahead. Sorry, Joseph. Yes. And this is what is very um, beautiful about your work, because a lot of um, people are referencing that we're still in the Kali Yuga. And until I read your work, I, I thought that was the case. And so this is a really important distinction. And I love how you've gone through and, um, yeah, spoken about this cycle, because I'm going to let you finish. But um, this is you know, how you've described each one of the uh, ages within your within your book, it has given this sense of um, sense of not hope, but, you know, all these spiritual, a lot of these um, religious dogmas and things like that have really painted this picture of, you know, things are only going to get worse and that, that we're in this decline. And this is why your work is actually the first teachings that I've read that have actually, you know, shown another narrative, another expanded narrative. And so, yeah, I'd love you to continue about the Dwapa um, ascending Yagya where we currently are. Yes, and you brought up an important point. I've mentioned several times now that the yugas originated in India and that um, most people there are somewhat aware of the yugas as a concept, but most people in India believe that we are in just the beginning years of an extremely long 
Kali Yuga. It's 432,000 years long <laughs> compared to 1,200 years. Mm -hmm. And according to Sri Yukteswar, this uh, difference between what he presents as a 24,000-year cycle in its entirety, from peak of Satya Yuga all the way through the cycle and back to the peak of Sali, uh, Satya Yuga again, and he explains the difference in a way that uh, many people in India disagree with. But basically, he said that about um, 1200 BC, a, an approach to the yugas was introduced that claimed that the each year of the yuga cycle is not a normal year, but is instead a year of the gods, and that it's 260 years long. So a single year is 265 human years, if you will, um, and that that is a, uh, a divine year or a year of the gods. And if you multiply 260 times 1,200, that's where you get the 432,000-year length of the yugas. But Sri Teshwar points out that the 24,000 years that he uses was actually the same number, the same years that are in the laws of Manu, which are quite ancient. They existed long before this claim was made about the years of the gods. And that Sri Yukteswar said, Manu, the laws of Manu basically just say it's 24,000 years. Mm. There's no, there's no, but those years are longer or special or different than normal human years. It just simply says it's a 24,000 year cycle. So Sri Yukteswar, um, who will uh, receive a lot of disagreement from Orthodox Hindus, basically says there is a 24,000-year cycle. This 432,000-year Kali Yuga is a mistake. Mm. Interestingly enough, though, in other um, things that he taught and other things that Yogananda said, the 24,000-year cycle is a cycle within an extremely long cycle that does last for hundreds of thousands of years. But that the 24,000-year cycle is much more immediate for us, and that what he goes to great lengths to explain in his book, The Holy Science, is that you can see the footprint. And that's really what I focused on in, in my book, uh, The Yugas, mm -hmm. uh, with my co-author, um, David Steinmetz, was what is the evidence? You know, what... Do we actually know about the past and the present that would match the qualities of those yugas as described by Sri Yukteswar? So if you start in the distant past of what Sri Yukteswar is saying is the highest age, the Satya Yuga, the last time it occurred, it peaked at 11,000 500 BC, and it lasted for 
4,800 years uh, from that peak. It had been lasting for 4,800 years before that peak for a total of 9,600 years. So if we go back that far, and evidence is scant from that time, it's mm -hmm. a long time ago, 1100 BC. But if we do look at what is actually available for us to um, see, it has a surprising support, surprising confirmation for that time being a higher spiritual age. The most prominent evidence we have from that time is a archaeological find uh, generally known as Gobekli Tepe. And Gobekli Tepe is in Turkey. And it is approximately uh, 8,000 to 9,500 years ago that it existed. Gobekli Tepe is one side of what could be um, many, many more, maybe up to 20 sites. Then each site is composed of uh, 16 to 20 open roofed ring-like structures that are sophisticated in ways that is quite surprising for that timeline. Mm -hmm. um, they had polished terrazzo floors, not pounded earth, not stone, but polished floors. And then they had these, what are called dolmens, these big statues um, that were part of the wall that created this space. And they had bas-reliefs on them. They had um, what looked like sort of um, heavily stylized statues of uh, people. So far more advanced than what was expected from that time. But the key thing that I see in it is that these structures were not fortifications. They were not meant to be inhabited. In fact, there was no sign of habitation anywhere near them. And they're roofless. They're not for shelter. So what are they? Obviously, a lot of time was spent to build these structures, mm. and there could literally be hundreds of them once all the uh, archaeological digging is done, if it is done to that extent. And what they must seem to be are sacred sites that Perhaps they were power centers where people meditated. Perhaps they were healing centers. Perhaps they were ritual centers. One thing we do know that also suggests that they had a especially powerful uh, purpose, transformative purpose, maybe even for the unknown, a dangerous purpose is that after a thousand years of continuous use, they were deliberately buried. Mm. 
So why would, if the modern mainstream archaeological narrative is true, why would primitive people go to the trouble of creating a structure that had no utilitarian purpose, and then why would they bury it? So that's one intriguing footprint. Another intriguing footprint from Satya Yuga is the uh, myths of paradise. So every ancient culture in the world actually has its own story of a paradise existing somewhere on earth. Uh, mm. The most common one to Westerners is the Christian idea of Eden and the tree of life in the center and Adam and Eve. But there are many other stories. Uh, you have the similar ones in Norse mythology. You have it in um, North America, in North American Indian myths. You have the uh, notion in Mesopotamia, where they talk about the Axis Mundi. And the Axis Mundi, if you read it, although it sounds um, different, the, the axis of the world is what it literally translates to, is very similar to the Tree of Life. And in fact, all of the myths of paradise have this notion that in the center, the very center of this paradise, there is this tree or there is this axis. And what uh, many spiritual teachers tell us, um, Yogananda among them, uh, Sri Yukteswar among them, is that the axis mundi or the tree of life is actually referring to our spine. And that our inner spine, our chakras, this subtle energy axis within our physical body, um, is the center of paradise. Because when we experience it directly and deeply, we're in higher consciousness, we're in bliss, we're in joy. And that what this indicates is that all of the myths of the uh, paradise that existed are really teachings. They're not stories of some long forgotten lost place, but they're teachings that paradise is within. Paradise is within the spine. Mm. Um, heaven is within. So these various myths or you know stories from the lore of ancient cultures indicate a very high age in the past um working down through the ages treta yuga has some very interesting things one of which i find the most fascinating is that it was in treta yuga that um sanskrit originated mm. And Sanskrit, as most people know, is an ancient language that uh, originated in India. Um, and that Sanskrit is the language in which uh, a huge body of scriptures, 
have been written. But the very first scripture written was the Rig Veda. Mm. And the Rig Veda is the oldest of them and is likely to be written somewhere or not even written, that's the wrong term. It was uh, conceived of as long ago as seven or 8,000 BC. The fascinating thing, again, for me, the fascinating thing that makes it connect to the uh, mental awareness, the mental powers that Sri Teshwar attributes to Treta Yuga is that it was conceived of all at once. Sanskrit as a language has no proto or developmental languages before it. It came fully formed. And astonishingly, even today, Sanskrit is the most sophisticated language in the world. It is so precise and so exact that it's actually studied by computer programmers to understand the best kind of syntax to eliminate any ambiguity in their uh, computer programming, because you don't want mm. ambiguity of any kind, even the tiniest bit, in a, a computer language. So it came fully formed. Again, if the uh, mainstream archaeological narrative is to be believed, nothing like that could possibly have been created 600, uh, or I mean 6,000 in 6,000 BC. And this is what is so fascinating about this cycle because it completely changes this linear history that we have been taught, Joseph. And this makes so much more sense to me and that we were much more advanced in our consciousness than we are led to believe. And it is just this sort of amnesia that we've sort of coming out of now, well, I hope more we're coming out of, um, right. that, yeah, is is so fascinating. And this is what why your work is so expansive because it makes you, you know, all these preconceived beliefs and things that you've been taught, it really pushes up against that and you really have to um, be open to an alternative narrative and yeah, so I find this so fascinating what you've just said about the Satya, Satya Yagya and with this, the highest um, pinnacle of consciousness, is that how you would describe it? So because that word, it means truthfulness, is that right? It means truth or the highest consciousness. Satya, yes. It's sat, it's also a, a word for the infinite divine consciousness is sat. So this is the age at which mankind's consciousness would be the highest. And uh, people who are alive at that time are able to perceive the divine directly. And they can understand that uh, it is divine consciousness that supports our mental abilities, which in turn 
supports our subtle energy, which ultimately supports uh, material reality. So we're, uh, as, as mankind as a whole in Satya Yuga, is experiencing a very refined level of conscious awareness. And this is a period, Joseph, that you mentioned there would be uh, telepathy and things like that, which to our consciousness in this time seems terrifying. But if you're Mm -hmm. in this period where, you know, you have this higher consciousness, there is no... I'm putting this in quotations, but no wrong thoughts or, you know, you wouldn't even be worried about, you know, um, thoughts being transmitted to someone else because they would be, you know, that pure consciousness. Um, so. Well, you certainly would be um, of a very high consciousness and you would always be wanting to do the absolute most truthful, most in tune actions but not everybody would be fully realized there still is a learning process going on vastly more refined than the learning process that's going on in our age which is pretty rough in comparison but one way to think of the yugas is that they are uh different uh levels of school Mm. that the lessons that we learn in our age are things we need to learn so that we can then graduate and go to um, Treta Yuga, where we can, in fact, learn to use our thoughts to communicate telepathically. And eventually we graduate from that age and we're able to be in Satya Yuga, but we're still learning um, more subtle but equally important lessons of how to be and this is where reincarnation really fits into this doesn't it joseph the the thought that the soul is on this um process of evolution and choosing to come into this time period i do often um you know ask my soul why we uh, we chose this <laughs> this point uh-huh. in time, uh-huh. but there is in your book you go into that you can be really embodying or trying to embody the consciousness of one of the higher I guess levels, and so and that can be the opposite way as well just because we're in a particular time period doesn't mean we're all of that consciousness there can be um that lower and that higher is that how i've understood it correctly yes no you're correct and it's an an important point to make to people because otherwise it seems uh like you're just carried along by the the flood so to speak you're just carried along by whatever the consciousness is at the time But in any age, you can experience any level of consciousness. But it's something that you have to have already worked at in a prior consciousness and be wanting to work on even more deeply still in a a current lifetime. The majority of people are going to be heavily influenced by the um, 
the way in which consciousness manifests in any given age. And then, as you say, there are going to be people who are um, less aware. So there's a mixture, but the bulk of people, the, the majority of mankind, are going to be uh, embracing and learning from the particular consciousness of that time. So for now, the age of energy uh, that is Dwapara Yuga, the kind of lessons that mankind as a whole are learning are about self-interest and the use of power, the use of your own abilities as a person, as an individual, as a soul. And we're early in Dwapara Yuga. It began in 1700 AD, uh, but it will go to 4100 AD. There's a long 2000 year span yet to go. Yeah. And during that time, mankind is going to keep learning hard lessons often about self-interest. So we see that fairly clearly in our day and age. Um, a lot of people, even if they're not extremely powerful political leaders who tend to be very self-interested, even if they're just ordinary people, their conviction is that in order to be happy, they need to have certain things or accomplish certain things or get certain things from other people, that we need to be loved, that we need to uh, have a uh, an abundance of the material uh, good stuff in the world that... Yes, that ownership. Need, yeah. Pardon me? That ownership that we're... Yeah, we need to possess and we need to experience... Uh, pleasure. Mm. So all of those things are what drives mankind for the most part. But there is a another trend that is more powerful and will grow to include more and more people in time, which is what we would think of as the the advent of metaphysical teachings, the advent of um self-realization teachings, the advent of finding and seeking your happiness within rather than without. Mm. And we're in a very interesting time because we have this heavy, strong, powerful self-interest going on, which is driving the kind of outer world that we live in. And yet we have an exploding interest in experiential spirituality. We have an exploding interest in meditation, in yoga postures, in Tai Chi, and numerous um, healing techniques that are about subtle energy. We have chiropractic, we have acupuncture, and hundreds more um, healing techniques that are based on awakening and directing subtle energy within the body. And we're now looking at millions of people who are embracing this. Now, we happen to live in a world where there's 8 billion people. So we're still a, a small 
minority, but we're growing rapidly because that is the gift of Dwapara Yuga as we ascend. But for a long time yet, we're going to be in the minority and those seeking power and pleasure and uh, control from self-interested motive are going to dominate our world. And eventually, enlightened self-interest is going to take over. I, I hesitate to even guess when, uh, but it could be decades, could be hundreds of years before mankind as a whole gets through this tendency to, um, you know, basically be in conflict with each other on a national and international scale and eventually get to the point where they realize it's not in anybody's best interest for us to do that. And that enlightened self-interest will become more and more the norm. Yeah, so moving away from eventually that that self-interest and going more to that self-realization and in your um, in the Yuya's book, you mention about how important it is to the state of our consciousness in influencing not only those around us, but also energetically the earth and how we can have that impact. And that's um, something that I really took away, like what um, these practices and this you know, going towards more of this self-realization, not underestimating the impact that that can have and helping, you know, raise that consciousness as we keep going through these up-leveling, I guess. And I guess another way could you look at it, Joseph, is that more light is coming onto the earth. Have you heard of that theory as well? Because that um, highest year, the Satya Yogya in, is it Greek, is also referred to as the golden age. So it's almost right. is like we're heading up on our ascending cycle, heading more towards the light, having more consciousness on like higher consciousness, more truth coming into our awareness. Well, if we could see auras as a general population, which I believe we will be able to in the future, mm. I think we would, on a day-by-day -day, uh, basis, we would be seeing people manifesting more light all the time. Mm. Their auras becoming stronger, the light that they're manifesting becoming um, purer, brighter, uh, and that this is just going to continue. Uh, we would also see, unfortunately, that many people who are, uh, again, if we could see auras, we would see that many people are uh, have, have dark auras, muddy auras, that they're not drawing the light, that they're contracting and constricting themselves in order to, as they mistakenly think, find that happiness outside of themselves. So... Yes, and I think the light that's coming in now is really, it's just the beginning. Uh, I can just imagine that in Satya Yuga, that if you could see that astral light, that astral subtle energy 
that everyone would have enormous auras and they would be full of brilliant light. Mm, I love that. And so coming back to um, the Dwapa yoga, um, yoga, the energy time that we're in, Joseph, would you, and it's interesting what you say about this self-interest because the first thing I thought about was the mobile phone and social media and how, you know, energy age, technology, and then if you see, you know, the advancements that we have had in technology, you can really see how we are in the energy age and how we're using energy, how energy is changing. When you look at the descending Dwapa Yuga, what is the differences and... Can you also explain where we are in parallel to the descending on the opposite side? And am I right in thinking that the time that we're in now on the opposite side of the descending in the same time period, this was when the pyramids were created? Mm-hmm. Yes, so there's fascinating parallels between the descending Tuapara, which was 2,400 years long, and our now ascending Tuapara Yuga. And people will often think, well, if, if that's true, then where is the technology? You know, we're just surrounded by technology in our time. So if these two, the descending and ascending, do parallel each other, then wouldn't the descending Tuapara Yuga have some technology, commensurate amount of technology? But it is this outer use of energy and the inner use of energy that is the key to understanding why that isn't so. So I was predicting a future just minutes ago, in which enlightened self-interest would gradually become the dominant way in which people think about what they're doing, and that more and more people would turn within and be finding their happiness uh, from inner energy, not from the outer, and that by the time we get to the end of ascending Dwapara Yuga, pretty much everyone will have made that transition to um, knowing themselves to be primarily energy and subtle energy at that. Mm. And that they would be able to use that energy for their own benefit or for the benefit of other people, that they could make things, they will be able to in the future, make things happen by methodically using inner energy to make it happen. So if you look into descending Dwapara Yuga, what you see is an age that is marked by people knowing how to use inner energy. And that because it started with them already fully knowing it, and then they gradually descended, 
it was the dominant way in which people lived. Now, this is reflected very significantly in um, prehistory that is put forward by the mainstream prehistorians and archaeologists, because the almost the entirety of descending Dwapara Yuga is known as the Age of Magic. Mm. Now, when the mainstream archaeologists refer to the Age of Magic, they don't do so thinking that magic was real. They do so thinking that magic was superstition and that mankind as a whole was abysmally ignorant and that magicians were basically taking advantage of uh, ignorant people, but that magic never did and never could work. But according to the yugas, the ability to manipulate matter is something that would have existed in Vapara Yuga in the past and will again in the future. And that manipulating material uh, objects, material reality, came to be called magic. And if you look at the uh, papyruses, the writings of um, the Atarva Veda um, and Chinese uh, ancient culture writings from that time, all those that survived, not many did survive. But what you'll see is that they had a very high level of knowledge of anatomy, which is quite surprising for the average Westerner. They did uh, caesarean sections. They knew about cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, they understood how the heart and most of the organs worked and what they did. Their treatments of them, however, although they did use herbs, their treatments of them were primarily what was considered magic. So they had people do um, chants and affirmations, and they had them uh, pray to the gods for healing power. Mm. You know, today that's all seen, you know, that's just, that's nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. So what a sad time that was. But the reality is it worked. Mm -hmm. It worked extremely well. And that is what we're beginning to rediscover in our ascending Dwapara, that divine energy, that affirmations, that mantras yeah. are powerful and they can give us good health. They can also bring um, benefits to us. So what we see in Dwapara Yuga is the age of energy or the age of actually using subtle energy in the same way that we use electricity. You know, we flip on a switch today and the light lights up or whatever turns on. In descending Dwapara Yuga, magic worked. They used it all the time. There was a, uh, there is a hieroglyphic panel in one of the uh, temples in Egypt that depicts uh, three people in a boat. 
and there's one person sitting in the very front of this boat. There's the man in the middle who's rowing, and then there is another man in the back. And beneath the boat, represented stylistically, is an alligator that's sitting on the bottom of the river. And in front of the boat, there are cattle swimming. And the hieroglyphics that go with it actually explain this as the man in the front of the boat is a magician who's casting a spell over the alligators, or the crocodiles, rather, so that the cows, the cattle, can make it across the river safely. And the man in the back of the boat is the rich man who owns the cattle, and the man in the middle is providing this value-added surface service to his client, the man in the back, to keep his cattle safe. So mm. magic was every day in descending Dwapara Yuga. But because they started with it fully developed, mm. they continued to use it. But when it began to, their ability to use it started to die out, they didn't develop technology, which is where we started. We started with uh, exploiting outward energy rather than exploiting inward energy. Yeah. Eventually, we too will exploit the inner energy and do many of the things that are now considered to be magical. Yes, and I think that's what really excites me, Joseph, the thought of, yes, this. Um, and you can see it starting to come up, like you mentioned, with, you know, the kundalini now, um, meditation, mantras, and really tap, tapping into that subtle energy force um, more than um, more than ever. So, and and the thought of those affirmations and more of that magic, I think, is uh, exciting and and something that we can uh, look forward to. And um, yes, yeah, been spend. Well, we don't have that. to wait. I mean, as individuals, yes. we don't have to wait. All of that is there now mm. i mean because uh, oh, the energy of the age yeah so we can use the energy um to... yeah we can use it now we don't have to wait for mankind as a whole to catch up to it mm. um we can use it now and millions and millions and millions of people are in fact using it in america alone there is a category of uh religious adherents or believers that's known as spiritual but not religious and there are 30 million people in it mm. in america so across the world i'm guessing there's more than 100 million people who are embracing an inner spiritual life mm. yes yeah, so true um joseph when you're talking about the the descending arc uh, the question that I've had has been around, you know, if you're in those higher consciousness years and even if you're in the um, Treta Yugya the, the, or the Silver Age and you knew that you were descending into the Dwapa Age and that you were going to start losing that connection um, start losing some of those abilities and maybe some of those mental abilities. 
I've always thought about, you know, then why the pyramids were built to maybe try and hang on to the energy of those higher ages and to preserve that connection because I can't imagine, you know, it's it's okay where we are now, we're rising and so what we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, if they were actually descending, knowing that you were going to lose that, that those mental abilities, even if you're trying to do those practices and those tools to tap into and retain those, um, those levels of consciousness, yeah, I, I would love to know your thoughts because I know in your book you talk about the, the pyramids and, and um, the Great Pyramid and, and what it was used for, but I, um, it wouldn't be a nice feeling to know that you're going to be losing um, that consciousness. Yeah, I suppose there, there would be some level of sorrow, but I would also imagine that in the higher ranges when it was clear that they were in a descending age, descending arc, they were also thoroughly committed to spiritual development and they would know that doesn't really matter from the point of view of what they need to learn whether they learn it at the right time in descending uh, ages or they learn it at the right time in ascending ages. Mm. The consciousness of mankind would be the same, although the way in which man is manifesting that consciousness would be different, but the core aspect of it would be the same. So I don't know if they were really sad, plus it's really slow. Mm. Right. It's, mm. you know, in a lifetime, you might notice that things have gone downhill a little bit as just in a lifetime. Now you can notice that some things are getting better, but they're not tremendously better, nor would they have been tremendously worse. Mm. But I do think, as you were suggesting, that the most enlightened people in that descending arc were continuously trying to preserve the higher knowledge of the past and to figure out a way to pass it on to a new age that doesn't have the same spiritual awareness or the same level of awareness. So I believe that the, uh, the Vedas starting with the Rig Veda, were conceived of when they were because it was the beginning of descending Treta Yuga, the mm -hmm. mental age, mm -hmm. and that the kind of understanding that was commonplace in such a Yuga was going to be forgotten. and to ameliorate that as much as possible, they created the Rig Veda and the other Vedas and then subsequent, many more subsequent scriptures because they were tools for raising consciousness. The Rig Veda is um, mantras, basically. It's mm -hmm. full of hymns that you chant in Sanskrit to raise your consciousness. Now, today they seem 
strange and foreign and they sound weird to us. But we didn't, we don't have the consciousness of the people who existed in Treta Yuga. And so they don't naturally fit for us, but they would have for Treta Yuga folks. And then as we continue down the arc and we get to the Great Pyramid, which is one of my favorite subjects, we have a similar point where the people in Treta Yuga knew that there was about to be a major step down in consciousness. And they too asked the question, how can we preserve what there is now and pass it on to those uh, who are going to be coming up ahead of us? And I believe because of the timing of the Great Pyramid in particular, that the Great Pyramid was built to be a way of accelerating spiritual growth for people who would not otherwise have been able to attain such high levels. Now, the common thought of the Great Pyramid, as I'm sure you know, and most people think, was that the Great Pyramid was a tomb and that it was built over a period of 20 years for the pharaoh Cheops to be uh, placed in it in a, a, a kind of perpetual state of preservation and that this would help him go on into the afterlife, etc. And this is embraced as a thought in particular because the Egyptians, by the time they got to the end of Vapar Yuga, were just absolutely fascinated by trying to preserve people so they could go on into the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So archaeologists thought, well, if they believe that then, then obviously that's what they believed way back when the pyramids were built. But this is 2000 years later that they're obsessed with death in the way that the Egyptians became. Mm. But at the time of the building of the Great Pyramid, they were just very close, you know, within 100 or 200 years of Treta Yuga. And so advanced, people who would have been advanced for their time coming out of Treta Yuga figured out a way to use uh, physical matter as a focal point for subtle energy to raise people's consciousness. And there are chambers in the Great Pyramid that, according to psychics, um, were used to accelerate people through particular levels of expanding consciousness. And that the entire area around the Great Pyramid, including the other two pyramids that are there as well, was an initiate school. And that people who um, could were uh, allowed to go there and trained and taught in meditation and other techniques to get themselves ready for this um, accelerated spiritual growth which they had to be prepared for. Mm. And so that was why it was an initiative school. You had to go through levels of preparation before they would put you in the 
uh, chambers that would have the most impact on your consciousness, because without it, it could damage your nervous system. It could be mm. the opposite of accelerating helpful, but just too much for you to handle. So there were spiritual masters there who could tell when people were ready and were also training them to be ready. So this, for me, makes a lot more sense mm. uh, from the point of view of the yugas than that it would be built as a uh, pyramid, as a tomb. The other archaeological footprint that we have that backs this up to some degree is that the Egyptians' ability and know-how to build pyramids declined rather than increased. Mm. So if Darwinian evolution is true, then the Great Pyramid would have been near the starting point, and they would have built more and more sophisticated structures. But in fact, it was the opposite. By the middle of descending Dwapara Yuga, they were still trying to build pyramids, but we don't know about them for the most part because they're more or less big piles of sand mm. at this point. They really did not uh, maintain the uh, building knowledge that they needed to create the first pyramids. And it's not just the Great Pyramid or even the ones nearby. There were other pyramids built near that same time. But from there on, it devolved. And their attitude towards, you know, what they were doing in higher consciousness also devolved until we have the uh, Egypt of the like 700 BC, 800, 900 BC, where they were very warlike and mummification was the big deal. And they were mummifying cats. I mean, they just took it to the, the, to the great extent that they did because they sort of lost track of why they were even doing it. Yes. Oh, that's so fascinating, Joseph. I it's it's almost as though the Vedas and the Great Pyramid uh, are these anchoring points for us right now because that's what the Vedas have really been for me, Jyotish, about Vedic astrology, because I had always had this question, you know, diving into the Vedas, how is this ancient knowledge so advanced? You know, things in the Vedas and Ayurveda that our science is only beginning to understand now is mm -hmm. so so intricate, so many layers. And, you know, when I look at Jyotish Vedic astrology, this for me is going to be a lifelong study because it is so intricate. It's as almost as though these remnants, so the Vedas and the pyramids, we can just look at and be, you know, in complete awe of because, you know, we don't know how the pyramids were built to this day, which is very humbling, I think, from a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just gives, um, yeah, it's like those previous consciousness 
gave us these little sparks of um, anchoring points to, you know, know that there's something else and that there's something more available. And it, as you say, it it hints at a much expanded future for mankind, which uh, many people tell me they just find the yugas relieving Mm. and and comforting because there's so much of the narrative today the political narrative is that we're just going to destroy each other and mankind as a whole is going to be you know bombed back to the stone age you've probably even heard that phrase used right because it seems like we're not progressing and we're in danger of really regressing but the yugas basically paint the picture that um, we're learning, we're learning the hard way, but we're changing to the better. Mm. Um, In my lifetime, and kind of extending back before my lifetime, I know enough about societal history here in America to clearly see that conditions have changed for the better in in America. Um, we are still appalled by man's mistreatment of man in America. And there's, you know, minorities who are ill-treated and disrespected. But if you go back a hundred years those minorities weren't disrespected. They were killed or murdered. They were hung. And we've forgotten, even in 100 years, how much worse society was at that time. So it is getting better, even though it's a bit rocky. Yes, in your in the Yugias book where you go into Kali Yuga with the, you know, there's also known as the Iron Age and that complete darkness of consciousness and you go into, you know, the brutality and the, you know, the the sacrifices and just, yeah, just the sheer darkness of it all. And having that lens to, as you just mentioned, to say, you know, it might not be completely, you know, enlightened, you know, point in time that we're at, but it is certainly ascending from that. Yes, we're a long way. (laughs) We're a long way forward from those times. And, um, you know, the Kali Yuga era, which includes the the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages and um, medieval Europe often gets romanticized in books and movies, but it was a horrible time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a horrible time. Life uh, expectancy was brutally short you know, in the 30s and uh, people were treated like chattel. People were owned. They were slaves or they were serfs. And as you mentioned, there was human sacrifice in Mayan 
uh, Mexico. There was the horrors of the Roman Empire with their gladiatorial games. It, it was a horrible time mm. compared to what we are mm. today. Mm. Yes, and it just makes me think about when we're now, um, you know, coming out of that and, yeah, focusing more on how we can have that, yeah, focus on that higher consciousness and, yeah, doing something that we can do ourselves. Well, we're bringing in the light. People like yourself, people I know, I mean, it's not something to get, um, you know, egoic about. Say, well, I'm bringing in the light. Mm -hmm. But we are all, in fact, bringing in the light because we're going within. We're, We're becoming channels for higher consciousness to come into the world. And however little more that higher is, it's still higher. And it radiates out into all of society and to all of mankind because our consciousness is linked. Most people are not aware of their connection to other people, but it it's real. And so even the tiniest bit of improvement that one of us has results in improvement for all of us. Yes, and it makes me think about the access that we have to our brain, you know, understanding that is it only 10% we have access to our brain? And then I think in those higher consciousness states, having more access to, yeah, those those different parts as well and how we can keep on increasing that. Um, Joseph, when I was finishing reading the Yugyas, um, and I have to say, a lot of the time my mind was bent into a pretzel (laughs) and expanded at the same time. But just to finish uh, that book off, you mentioned, which was fascinating to me because my background is in astronomy, was the theory that our star, our sun, is could potentially be in a binary star system with uh, a failed star and this could potentially explain the concept of precession because in Vedic astrology this is something that I'm always trying to explain because Vedic astrology is very different to Western astrology because Western astrology doesn't account for that precession. But I'm just interested to know your your thoughts on this uh, star system because you know, coming back to the start of our conversation where we're talking about the 24,000-year cycle and I've often thought why is it, you know, 24,000 years? Is it correct in saying that there's a theory that it is a revolution of our sun around uh, a greater system and that is just like a, um, you know, our, our earth going around our sun once? Um, but that cycle is a 24,000 year. Hope, hopefully I didn't butcher any of that. <laughs> right. No, yeah, well, you were you were very close. I mean, Sri Teshwar, um in the Holy Science describes there being a, um, a center of consciousness in our universe 
that we get closer to and farther away from in this 24,000 year cycle. And we get closer to it and farther away from it because we are doing a rotation with a dual, as he calls it, D-U-A-L. Uh, and that the dual, as you mentioned, could be a, a brown dwarf, which is a, a really massive object that never quite became a star, so it's not visible. And there's a lot of speculation among astronomers that there could be uh, many more brown dwarves out there than we're aware of because they are so hard to see. And that this uh, motion, this kind of dosy -si do that we're in with the failed star, this heavy brown dwarf, mm. causes us to do um, a loop closer to and then farther from this center of Brahma, the center of higher consciousness. As of today, there is no astronomical proof of this other star existing or of us moving, our solar system moving in relationship to other stars. There is some intriguing, interesting new proof about a, a star known as Barnard's star, which is relatively close to us, that is moving toward us rapidly. And it remains to be seen whether further study will show that uh, it's having a, an effect on us that's causing us to be closer to or farther from this, uh, this grand center, as Sriukteshwar called it. But that's the basic idea. Mm. Um, there's another idea which is a bit more astrological than astronomical, which I kind of like. Uh, Sri Yukteswar said that we are rotating around a duel that is, as he put it, we take some star for a duel. And my co-author, David Steinmetz, um, considered the possibility that the wobble of the Earth, which causes the recession mm. of the um, zodiac, could be seen as, if you have, a, I'll put my thumb up here, imagine my thumb is the axis of our earth mm. and that when we wobble our thumb moves in a circle and that that circle is tiny because the wobble of the earth isn't that big but that circle could be revolving around a distant star and that could be the duel and that could be the meaning of the revolution so why then would it uh, make us closer to and farther from this influence. And David Steinmetz, my co-author's idea, was that just as we tune a crystal radio, which is not something that people generally even know about anymore, but when you tune a crystal radio, 
you're actually orienting the crystal to a particular wavelength coming from a particular direction, a radio wave. And when you tune yourself, when you tune the, the crystal to it, it captures that radio frequency. And if there's anything piggybacking that radio frequency, you hear music, you hear people talking, mm -hmm. you have intelligence piggybacked on that radio frequency. So David was positing that as we rotate uh, with our wobble, which does take close to 24,000 years, this mm -hmm. has long been known, mm -hmm. that we attune more and then less to this source of energy. Frequency. Just oh, like yeah. a crystal yes. tunes more or less to a particular radio wave. I kind of like this because I think that the reason why mankind's consciousness expands and then contracts is because the actual vibration of the entire earth changes. It gets mm -hmm. more refined. It gets more congruent, which is hearkening to quantum physics. And that as it gets more congruent, as it gets more refined, it enacts us more deeply to subtle energy, to um, non-local energy. Mm. So I'm going off in a <laughs> with a lot here that I can't explain quickly, but I like that direction. But at the same time, it's still quite possible that there is a gravitational duel somewhere out there and that we do a dosi -si do with it that gets us literally closer to and farther from a grand central source of uh, energy that in, you know increases our consciousness refines our consciousness and then as we move away from it our consciousness becomes less refined mm -hmm. so equally possible they're both as of now unproven mm -hmm but possible. I like that theory as well. Thank you for sharing that, Joseph. And I, I would just love to ask, um, when I was reading your, your second book, Joseph, um, the physics of God, my biggest takeaway was your, your emphasis on meditation and how powerful that has been for you. So I'd love to know, what is your meditative practice at the moment? What, do, what does that look like? Well, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, get my teachings from Paramahansa Yogananda. And Yogananda um, shared with people a, a series of meditation techniques. And the first one that he would... Uh, ask people to do is what's called the hung saw technique and the hung saw technique is a meditation where you watch the breath and the more you watch the breath the more it naturally slows down the more it naturally slows down the more you're able to concentrate at the point between the eyebrows and go deeply within that subtle energy in your in your core 
He also taught a technique called the Ohm technique, where you listen to the vibration of the cosmos and you feel the vibration of the cosmos within you. But the technique that he was came here most to give, came to the West most to give, is what's called Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga is a pranayama technique, which by deliberately using your breath in a particular way, um, takes you deep into a breathless, still state. And when you're in that deep, breathless state, you are aware of spirit much more powerfully than in any other way of these other techniques. So I practice all of them, but Kriya is the one that um, I'm most faithful to. That is the one I always do each and every day. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, Joseph. And I would love to love if you could share where our listeners can dive more into your work and yeah, where they, where they can find out more. So I have a website um, that you can get to at josephselby.com. Um, I always take care to spell my last name because it's not spelled the ordinary way. So Selby, S-E-L-B-I-E. You'll often see it as S-E-L-B-Y, which is the English spelling minus the Scottish spelling. So S-E-L-B-I-E, josephselby.com. There you can read articles that I've written. Um, there are links to other resources. There's more about all of my books and uh, contact information if you want to reach out to me for some reason. Um, I'm also, um, you know, kind of everywhere in social media that people are usually everywhere. So if you are fond of any particular social media, look for me in that, follow me, connect with me, and uh, you will see, you know, regular uh, bits of information coming your way. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you again for your for your time and your wisdom and your incredible body of work. It is truly illuminating and I cannot recommend enough um, diving more into uh, Joseph's work. It is just, yeah, life-changing. So thank you again, Joseph. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Star Being. May the wisdom shared resonate in your soul. Until next time, stay connected and keep reaching for the stars. This is Star Being signing off.